welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler, and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Artist Appeals. We've got another great episode for you today as we talk with the curating manager of Woolworth Walk. It's an iconic and historic gallery in Asheville, Tennessee, featuring over 170 artists with 20,000 square feet of display space. It's a gallery that was actually constructed in the original 1923. F.W. Woolworth Five and Dime Store. And in fact, they recently restored the lunch counter back to the original circa 1940s, 1950s lunch counter. So you can still eat there. So in this episode, we're going to talk with the wonderful and amazing artist and curating manager, Erin Kellum. Hey, Erin. Hi. So uh, crazy day, huh? You said you were cleaning your studio. You wanted to get in and make some stuff, huh? Yes, I've been brewing some new ideas, um, integrating some recycled material, which is kind of a different take for me. And so I've been stashing away some things that I wanted to try and integrate into some mixed media pieces. And I felt like I got to a spot where I was ready to do some of that. And then I got sidetracked cleaning the studio and never made any artwork. (laughs) I know exactly how that goes. Uh, it's not the first time either. It's <laughs> no, no, sometimes I have to, you know, I feel like I've wasted a whole day, um, cleaning, but I think if you, I think it can actually be invaluable. You know, I think sometimes it sets you up to create better, especially because then you start to know where your stuff is. So you said you're into mixed media. Perhaps we should share with our friends out there what you make and who you are. Yeah, I'm, um, <laughs> Oh my goodness, that's a big question. Who am I? Well, um, let's start with what do you make? Because we're talking about art first, and I always give a little intro before the podcast, so they've got the build-up. But let's hear about what you make first. Okay, so the the long story on that is that I was trained as a photographer. That's my degree, and I pursued fine art photography for many, many years. And Awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and the architecture of the buildings downtown was just really inspiring. I did a lot of black and white work Mm. um, on the buildings, tried to keep a real timeless feel. I would shoot when there weren't a lot of cars around and and tried to have no people. But then I had kids, and um, (laughs) that that shifts things, you know, out of necessity. Just things sideways. Yeah, suddenly having glass and, and sharp metal frames and mat cutters and things like that were yeah. not the most ideal. <laughs> the little fingers. Oh, yeah, those mat cutters. I've got one of those oh. big ones that goes, thump, and it's so satisfying. But then you have kids and you're like, oh, my God, this could take off a finger. I really think the guillotine inspired those cutters. <laughs> yeah. So yes, it's exactly right. So yeah, and and I was watching some things happen with um, with the photography 
field in general and and how sales were going. Mm. So there was a there was a little bit of a a, a conspiring of forces. Mm-hmm. People were were not really compelled to buy black and white photography. Um, photographers were starting to put out their prints on canvas and metal and and all mm-hmm. of these cool surfaces. Yeah, two thousand five, two thousand ten, wasn't it? Kind yeah, yeah, that's yeah. that's almost exactly when it was. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm in photography too. Yes. Yeah, I do multiple exposures. Ooh. So that was kind of my shtick for a long time was taking two photographs on film in the camera and then, you know, the unexpected results, the juxtaposition of shapes. Didn't quite know what was always going to happen because the white spots would allow it was always a fascinating experiment and a little bit of a fortuitous event when you would see what would come of it. Yeah, and that's hardcore. You you've got some <laughs> serious technical chops going on there when you're doing multiple exposures in a camera. That's I'm impressed. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but they take time and you've got to hike and find the different things and with kids that don't work. You don't have yeah, six hours. Yeah, it really does. It really does shift. So that's that's where where I've been. I stepped away from mm-hmm. photography and have not really revisited it. But of course, Artists always have a, a burn to create. It, it, it didn't go very long before I started thinking about what inspired me and what I wanted to try to put out there in the world. Mm-hmm. And Asheville is, is just a gorgeous place. There are mountains in every direction, and they recede yeah. into the distance um, in, in just really beautiful and kind of translucent ways. So I started playing Aren't around. Are referred to as the Blue Mountains? Yeah, Blue Ridge. Yeah, Blue the Ridge Blue Ridge Mountains. Mountains. I've hiked some of them. Now, have you always lived down there or did you move? We have lived here in Asheville for, this will be 18 years this year. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. So. Yeah, they really do. The the um, value change, the um, pr- the focal lengths of those mountains are just phenomenal. Yeah. And there's just layers and layers of of varying shades of blue. Yeah. So how in the world does that influence your mixed media? Well, I started playing around with um, tissue paper and and sort of collaging it together, different different colors of blue to try Mm -hmm. and capture a little bit of the receding distance. Mm. And then I I started playing with um, acrylic resin. And mixing layers of acrylic resin in between each of the layers of of tissue paper to try and get some depth. I'm still I'm still hammering Uh. out some things. I don't I don't know. Does any artist ever feel like they get to the spot where they're happy with their work that we (laughs) would admit? Right. I think that's when we're dead. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) We finally achieved it when we can't do it anymore. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So. Yeah, I'm still uh, I'm still working on getting what I feel is is the depth out of the yeah. pieces that I want. Okay, so you're seeking depth. I love that as a concept. You know, I really think I talk with my students about um, how to find your artistic voice a bit, quite a bit, because it's a hard topic, and I think we're all seeking something. And if you can label it. You know, you're seeking depth. You know, if you're seeking something specific in a body of work, I really think it helps to create a cohesive voice. 
and it gives you a direction to work in as well. Um, yes. which I think when you're, when you're, when you've set aside time to just really pursue that, you know what you're pursuing, which is mm. good. Yeah. Yeah. And having a mission, a goal, it can help you keep focused. Definitely. Hey, Aaron. Have you ever considered um, layering those tissue papers in wax, in encaustic? I have not. I um, Encaustic, just because I, I know a handful of encaustic artists. Yeah. It's a little daunting to me. It's I think it's stuff, worth yeah. trying. But yeah, I, I, feel, um, I feel daunted by it. I actually know <laughs> of a studio not too far from me in Asheville that I could take um, classes. And I've definitely oh, been come. tempted. Yeah, come on down. Definitely yeah, been soon tempted. As this pandemic by that. is over. I'm on my way. <laughs> Eat out. I hear you. I definitely hear you. Okay, so now Woolworth Walk. How does this tie in? See, so oh, photography gosh. and mixed media. What? And the gallery, yeah. this huge, amazing gallery in this oh, old Woolworth you. building that is like, iconic shopping department store. I mean, I've got a picture of it pulled up and I love those details over the windows. What are those? Art Deco? They're kind of yeah. like like little, oh, I don't even know what to call them. Finials or column like inlaid in gold above the windows. They're really neat. Yeah. Yeah. The building is an Art Deco building um, built in 1938. Okay. And it, it's just a really cool building. How did I get there? Yeah. It's such a, yeah, a weird juxtaposition of things. We moved to uh, Asheville, my okay. husband and I, yeah. and I started looking for someplace um, to show my photography work. And right. I walked in the doors and said, well, this is a cool place. Yeah. I had no idea that it had only been open for six months. I could not oh. tell. I couldn't tell that it was, you know, relatively new business. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, it really was. Uh, the owner was behind the counter, and I wound up, you know, talking to him for a long time. Super great guy. Of course, is now my boss. And I wound up, uh, what, I walked in there probably in, in August of 2002. Mm -hmm. By November, a space had opened up for me. So I moved in in mm -hmm. November 2002. And then I, I wound up dropping into the gallery pretty often. Uh, and at one point, he said, man, you're here a lot. And I said, well, you know, <laughs> figure I'm being friendly. And, and if you know who I am, then you can help people buy my work. And he yeah. said, well, if you're here a lot, you have time on your hands. Can we call you when somebody calls out sick or we need an extra hand or whatever? And I said, well, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you sure can. Please do. Here's my number. Well, fantastic. I have worked for him for 17 years now. Wow, wow. So let's talk about the business model of what's going yeah. on in the Woolworth Walk. Because this is a huge space. How many thousand square feet is it? It is 20,000 square feet. Holy crap. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a, it's a two-level gallery. So there's, there's 10,000 square feet on each level. There's a main staircase just inside the doors. Mm -hmm. You know, hopefully invites people to go on down and check things out. Um, there are 170-ish uh, local artists. That is so incredible. 
It's amazing. Yeah, it's I obviously being there for 17 years, there's really no place else I would rather be. I, I love the atmosphere. Yeah. Getting to talk to artists all day long and be surrounded by art all day long and people collecting art all day long. Um, yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly how I feel. It it's a dream. And there's not, you know, there's not one person that comes to everybody walks up to the front counter and they've found something that just means something to them, or they know mm. that it's gonna be the perfect gift for someone else for a birthday or anniversary or Christmas or Hanukkah, mm-hmm. or Kwanzaa, whatever. And that's that's really fun too. It's it's great to share that moment when somebody has found something and and you know the artist behind it. Mm. Mm-hmm. One of the coolest things that we get to do is call the artists when they've sold something and let them know that there's an empty hook on the wall or there's a customer that has a question that we would love to have the answer for and just being connected that way and connecting the people that are buying the artwork with the artists that that are offering it. It's just a cool, cool thing. Yeah. I mean, the the enthusiasm must be really cool. Like just the energy. It sounds like such a positive, fun place um, yeah. with a lot of connecting going on. Yeah. Even, even in the craziest seasons, you know, the height of summer for tourism uh, or, or approaching holidays when you, you can barely take a breath. We're so busy. It's still fun. The, yeah. the, you know, the customers are not frenzied. They're not trying to accomplish so much that, that they're not enjoying themselves. Mm. And that makes a huge difference. Well, it's an experience. But I want to back up just a quick sec. You mentioned you get to call the artist when a piece sells yeah. and tell them that there's an empty hook. Now, is that a store policy? Because that sounds like a really simple yet brilliant sales strategy. You don't want bare bare walls, right? So how do you guys handle that? What do you do? You what what is the system here? Well, it's not policy. Uh it's just a courtesy. And we try okay. um you know, one of the things that I think sets us apart at Woolworth Walk is the personal relationships that we're building. The artists are local and we're there to encourage their sales. Um, an empty hook doesn't doesn't make them money and it doesn't give us the the small commission that we take. And mm-hmm. um, it, it just developed into, uh, first, we're sharing fun news. And who doesn't right. love sharing fun news? Yeah, you sold a piece. Right. And, and then there's, you know, a practical business side of it as well. I have to say that with cell phone technology, that has gotten so much faster and easier. Almost all of the artists have smartphones, and it's just a really easy, quick text to them oftentimes to say, mm-hmm. hey, this is what you just sold. I can send you a picture of your display space if that's helpful, um, because so many of them are very visual. It will make more mm. sense to them to see which piece is missing than right. to say, you know, the one, the one with the flowers sold. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, we talk about art and then we talk about product. And in your case, the product is the art. The gallery sells. If you have 170 artists and 20,000 square feet, what does that translate into number of, of art pieces? That's got to be that's got to be a lot. <laughs> I can't even do the math in my head. <laughs> yeah, it, it, obviously it varies um, day of the week. Uh, there are slower days and busier days and um, seasons. There mm-hmm. are busy seasons and, and less busy seasons. 
Mm -hmm. Our computer system where we track all of our sales actually lets us know how many items Mm -hmm. are are sold each day. And it ranges, obviously, from, you know, uh, 50, 60, 70 to uh, I think the highest item number we ever hit was maybe, I want to say just under 500 or right around 500. But bear in mind that that even, I mean, even something like a note card or a bookmark or a magnet would count as an item. So not all of them are are large original pieces of work. But still, that's really phenomenal. It just goes to show that artwork can move. Artwork can sell. And that, you know, if you treat it like a business, I mean, I just love the idea that you text the artist with a picture of their space. So it's a little like an antique store, right? Where they kind of have a booth or like a little segmented area and they decorate it with their art, right? Yes. It's and exactly then, exactly that model. Yeah. And so um, do they come in oftentimes, you know, within like a day or two to replace it and put something new up? They do. Uh, and that's part of them living within an hour. It makes it very easy for them to come and be personal and hang new work. Mm-hmm. It, yeah, it's it's just really great. And if they are unable to, sometimes sometimes we can offer a little tiny bit of storage if somebody mm-hmm. is going to be on vacation uh, and they know that that they've got something that they w- would like to have as a backup. Mm-hmm. We don't want to offer that too consistently because we do want to build the relationship and see them in person. And Right. And well, you're utilizing most of your space, right? Oh, yes. <laughs> Every inch that, that I can be creative with, I turn into display space. Yeah. So is your job, so not only are you an artist at the gallery, right? Yes. But you're also kind of a manager of the gallery. And so you also get to design the space. You're almost kind of like an interior designer. And, um, um, uh, you know, we talk about pogs a little bit. So we got art, we got product, right? You, you turn your art into a product and you've really got to start thinking about your art like a product. You got to do kind of a mind shift, right? And then we do presentations. So this is actually a perfect segue into talking about presentation and about the next step as well, which is educating. Because you just talked about the connection of the artist with you guys and with the customer. And I hear that over and over and over again in my interviews is that it's really all about the connection. So presentation and connection for you guys are like intrinsically linked, would you say? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I actually describe myself as the curator of the gallery. Okay. I feel really strongly that... Yeah, how things are displayed within guidelines. We we encourage our artists to take charge of their displays in a way mm-hmm. that that makes them happy. So they do their own lighting, they paint the wall color, something that they feel is a suitable backdrop for their work. Oh, you let them paint. Very nice. Yeah. Well, you know what? It gives them ownership. And and yeah. when you feel good about the place where your art is hanging, you know, it's it's been hung the way you want it to hang. Maybe there, mm-hmm. you have pieces that you feel are companion pieces, and it's important for you as an artist to see them together. This allows them complete control over that. That's how they want their work to be viewed. And that's important because that's 
part of their vision and part of their statement uh, of what they're trying to make or or convey. But then where the the how the artwork unfolds as you walk through and experience it, mm-hmm. I think is very important. In a gallery yeah. with 170 people in it, you can't put a potter next to a potter. You can't put a photographer next to a photographer. It's divisive and um, it doesn't generate a community feel. Right, right. Then too much competition happens. Exactly. And I don't want anybody to feel like it's a competitive situation because it's not. There are, you know, as many people as are out there, everybody has different taste in clothing. Everybody has a slightly different uh, hue of favorite color. Everybody has different feelings on foods and, you know, personal expressions. So there doesn't need to be any type of competition in in, yeah. in the building. Yeah. I, I can't believe you let them paint the walls. That's really unique and fantastic because the traditional gallery system is the white wall with all of the work, you know, traditionally isolated, like a minimum of two feet between uh, pieces. You know, it's just so, and oftentimes the curators are very much in control of the presentation. You know, things are hung at eye level. The center of the piece is supposed to be at eye level, blah, 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 blah. You know, they have a lot of rules. So the fact that you give um, ownership of some of the presentation aspects to the individual artists is, is really unique and phenomenal. It's important to me. I know, having hung my own photography work, Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much with the mixed media, but definitely with the photography work uh, when I was hanging that in the gallery. I wanted certain pieces to be next to each other. You know, I, yeah. I wanted the lighting just so. I, I mm-hmm. wanted, I, I knew what background color I felt made my work stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I can't imagine not having that input from an artist. Yeah. I love the fact, though, so you really get to organize 170 artists' location. That sounds like a logistical nightmare, actually. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It's the most fun. It's, I, I, honestly, I may be crazy for it, but it really is fun. And sometimes when I'm bringing a new artist in, I don't have the, the size of space that they would really prefer to show their work on. Maybe I only mm-hmm. have a three-foot wall, and they really wanted something bigger, but I, I really just wanted to get them in the door, and the location of the three-foot wall is suitable for their work. It, it fits in well. Mm-hmm. And then as, as time goes on and things move around a little bit, I'm able to move them into a space that, that they do want that is more suitable for their work or mm-hmm. you know deals with a, a better viewing distance for what their work is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that stuff just, I absolutely adore. I mean, it is, it's rearranging. It's, it's like an interior design when you rearrange a room and you yeah. start thinking, oh my goodness, it would be so much better if I could move this person to that spot and that person over there. And then, you know, I, I, I can create this, this funny, funny juggle of oh, I, however I, many. I get it. I just rearranged my, we have a room that's a guest room slash kids playroom. And now yoga room. And I just rearranged it last night. And it is. It's so gratifying. That sounds like not just a logistics problem, but like a fun puzzle. Oh, it's so fun. Yeah. Do you know what happens when you rearrange a room? 
What? You see things in that room that you didn't see before. Ah, yeah. Because you've moved them. And I, yeah. I strongly feel, because there are, we have an amazing local customer base that has, mm-hmm. has supported us so very well for so long. And for them, I, I always think about people that have been to the gallery multiple times. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't stay static for them if I'm able to move artists around. That's so a really good point. They, yeah, they may get so used to something being in a certain spot that they start to just walk by it and they don't see it mm. in the same way that they would if I'm able to move things around. Uh, right. And that's kind of the same idea with artists being in charge of how they hang their space is if they bring all new work in, you know, the season has changed. So uh-huh. they're going to put their focus on a whole new series of work that that does the same thing. So it's a different gallery every single day. Now, do you have the artists come in and rearrange their um, booths on a schedule? Or do you suggest to them that they come for each season or each holiday? Or do they, you know, how do you manage that? How do you teach your artists? the art of presentation? It's all just very friendly because we've built the relationships with them. Um, Mm. Often they will ask, you know, hey, are you getting any feedback on the space? Is anybody talking about this particular piece or that piece? Or um, I noticed that I haven't really moved too much in a while or Mm -hmm. or not to the, the extent that I want to. Do you have any suggestions? And it's just a conversation because it, needs to be what they're comfortable with. If you put too many rules onto someone's display, their creativity, their energy is 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 squished. Astute of you. Wait, I've just watched it for for a long time. When somebody tries to force things to be a certain way, it just doesn't feel good. And and even customers walking in that have no idea the background mm-hmm. of the space. They they seem to be able to feel it too, and I can't really explain that. It doesn't make sense to me, but I've watched mm-hmm. it for a long time. I've I've watched exactly that. Yeah, yeah. What's the best tip you could ever received or ever thought about or heard about in presenting your work? I mean, you've seen 170 artists. Well, more than that because they're rotating in and out. And you've been doing this for what you said like 17 years or something that's a lot of artists you got like a lot of artists yeah you got any amazing nuggets or ideas on presentation for us oh that's a good question (laughs) you're the one to ask it to is i'm like oh she she's had some serious chops in presentation what have i said i think i think there's a balance i think that you have to know your work a little bit. Mm. There are some pieces that want space. They need breathing room. They want to be assessed on their own without, you know, companion pieces too close or, or similar works too close. But I think mm-hmm. there are others that, because of the nature of the work, having more to see on a wall is is successful. So... Knowing your work and knowing how much breathing room it needs, I think, is probably important. Mm. Do you think it has anything to do with the complexity of the work? Do you think 
more um, visually complex pieces need more space? Or do you think it, maybe it's the two ends of the spectrum. I mean, this is a crazy thought here, but do you think like really, really minimalist pieces and really, really layered complex pieces need more space than other ones? That's a good question. I'm I'm trying to kind of mentally walk through the gallery and and see who fits that. And there is there is an element of that that's true that a piece that has multiple layers of complexity wants to be assessed on its own and and interacted mm-hmm. with on its own. But there mm-hmm. are other examples um you know I have I have some folks that do I would call them like dynamic collaged pieces that that have a lot of elements but their message is simple Mm. and that kind of artwork you can you can it's not crowded but you can present multiple pieces in a smaller area because the message is a little simpler and so the the Mm -hmm. viewer i think is is looking for the colors that are most um, appealing or that's not that's not an answer, is it? <laughs> no, no. I think it's a really great. I think it's a really great discussion to have because I think if you're an artist and you've ever hung any work, but trying to put together a collection, trying to arrange your work for presentation is one of the things that has to be practiced and developed. Um, I know I've done critiques. I did a critique with John Paul Caponegro up in Maine. I went to his workshop for fine art printing of photographs, like level two or something, many, many years ago before I had kids. And they had a, a portfolio critique. And I spent all night organizing my artwork and trying to put it in order so that it told a story. And when I got there and watched a couple people present, Right before it was my turn, I pulled them all out of the sleeves and I threw them on the table and I said, no order. And he was like, what? I'm like, I, I want to see what people pull out of these alone. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. you, you do have to kind of um, develop ideas about how the work is going to be presented and having conversations about how to group them and when they stand on their own and when they are grouped is an intellectual discussion that I think we artists maybe dig. <laughs> or at least I do. Call me a nerd. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think as an artist, you know which piece maybe means more to you or mm-hmm. or has something in it that you want to stand alone. Yeah. And and, and then there are pieces that go together. You you did them at the same time. You were working on a diptych or a triptych kind of concept. Um, yeah. And those those you would group more closely together. Yeah, I've, I've had pieces that you put them together and they augment each other. They build each other up and make each other something more. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think it can be suggestive to a customer when you've got things grouped like that. Maybe, Ooh, yes. For maybe purchase? they need... Maybe they need to know that the artist sees those two pieces, those three pieces, together. That's how they displayed it on the wall. And they, you know, it's obviously that they've paired or or tripled those pieces together. And maybe that's what you want to take home and and put. You don't want just the one, you know, you don't want the left one. You want both of them because that (laughs) looks more complete to you. And I think that that can be... You know, an artist yeah. can can suggest with how things are displayed. 
Well, yeah. And, you know, there's collecting in art, too. So Jeffrey Stoner referred me to you guys, and he was on the podcast, and he's such a cool photographer. And he was talking about the success of his goat collection, of his, his goat series. And, um, you know, one of the things I loved about him and his interview is how he really talks about he, he's almost like research driven. He's one of the more research driven artists that I've interviewed or photographers that I've interviewed. And he talks about photographing these goats and not just as a documentation of the research project that they were doing on top of the mountain, but also the way he researches the success of his art. And he's come to the conclusion that story is integral and that educating the purchaser of the story is is just so key. And so that kind of brings us to this idea of educating. So we've got art, product, presentation, educating um, in the appeal system, because we're trying to categorize a lot of information. And yes. he educates by grouping those pieces, right? And then putting a story in the back. Now, do you do that with mix, your mixed media? And do you see uh, a lot of the other artists in the gallery doing that? Like, you know it's what I mean? It's very personal. There, mm. there are artists who will invest that time and, and present things that way. And yeah. there are artists that are almost reclusive. They just want to put their work out there and vanish into the into the busy streets as <laughs> as quickly as they can and then just wait for the phone call. And and you know nothing is wrong with either of those. It's it's how you're presenting your work. Mhm. Mm and you know be finding the comfort level in that. And I don't see mm. one or the other of those being more successful. I'll I'll put that out there right up front. I oh, don't cool. feel like it's more successful to back up your, your work with stories and information or, or not to. Sometimes the, the, you know, the reclusive artist's work stands alone and they're comfortable with that. And, and that's great. Do you think that the viewer or purchaser maybe imbibes it with their own story? Certainly, I think there's that yes. angle as well where you can invite the viewer by the very lack of the story, you can you can deliberately say, I refuse to tell you a story because I want you to imbibe your own story or embed your own story into this piece. And that in a exactly. way is the story itself. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're working on triggering a memory for somebody, you know, if it's if it's a picture of, a, you know, painting of a, a seashore. It may remind someone of a summer they spent with grandparents or, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a treasured memory of, of a spring break trip or mm -hmm. something like that. So, yeah, I, I absolutely think that leaving it to the viewer to have a, a reaction or a response to the work is absolutely a valid, a valid way of, of presenting the work and just letting it, letting it be. You know, Aaron, I'm thinking of the scream, and this is kind of crazy that it makes me think of the scream. But you know that piece by Edward Munch? Am I saying his last name right? Munch or Munch? I never well, know. I, how. Yeah. <laughs> I'm horrible with pronunciation. However, however, you said it is right. <laughs> right, 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 right. I think he was a uh, Northern European. So let's go with Munch, something deep and guttural. <laughs> but you know, I believe the story goes is that he did three of those. You know, and they're called the scream. 
And it's one of the most iconic pieces out there, right? If you guys haven't seen it, go look up the scream. But he doesn't tell the story behind it. He doesn't say, oh, I had this nightmare where I was being chased and I fell off a cliff or, or whatever, you know. Um, he just calls it the scream and lets you kind of uh, understand that he was exploring terror. He was like yeah. we were talking about before how he had a goal. He had a he had a goal in those three pieces. And one of them is the most famous, but the other ones are pretty famous, too, because he was trying to capture terror. Right. Right. Yeah, so maybe... exactly. And, and, you, and, and terror is different for everybody. You know, for some of us, mm. it's running out of coffee. So <laughs> for some of us, it's this uh, pandemic of 2020. Ugh. Yeah. Excuse yeah. my, <laughs> my language. <laughs> no problem. No problem at all. Yeah. I think drawing it back to, to education. I think, um, and, and I say this Thank to you. my staff over and over again, well, because it's, it's the other half, right? It's not, it's not always what the artist presents in terms of here's, here's what might be happening in this, in this piece right. of artwork as you're observing it. It's what the customer understands. Right. And I, I have seen as, as Asheville has become um, a more of a tourist destination, it used to be back in the day that we had a lot of conversations about the differences between an original and a gicle and, uh, you know, a print on paper or a note card. Right, right. So you were educating people as to the features yes, rather than the benefits, huh? Because they didn't always understand that a, a gicle or a print, you, you will have multiple of the same image, but an original right. is only one. Yeah. And that, that has made a difference in how people are consuming art. But there's also like all of the fascinating differences between oil painting, acrylic painting, and caustic painting, yeah. um, mixed media works. What, what is it mixed media? Is mixed media metal? Is mixed media paper? Mixed media um, glass? So mm. having those conversations and sharing what we've learned from the artist Mm. often makes a huge difference on someone's decision to purchase a piece of art. Fantastic. You know, Jeffrey, going back to Jeffrey again, he was talking about how he yes. actively selects galleries. And one of his, he is really fascinating about his selection process. And one of his criteria is watching the way the staff, uh, I was about to say faculty and staff, but the way the staff interact. And the way they sell, because that can make them break a gallery, you know, whether they're friendly, whether they're cordial, whether on their cell phone. But I really think that you bring up a great point, being able to have those discussions about the different features and the different mediums and, and educating your audience is so important. Yeah, because they don't always know what they're looking at. Yeah. And you know, sometimes they don't want to know, but sometimes they do. Sometimes they're curious. And it's nice. When you know the artist, when you've built that relationship, it's nice to be able to just breeze by someone, assess their level of interest, and say, wow, you know, if I could tell you anything more about Jeffrey's work, let me know. Yeah. You know, that opens the door. And if they want to know, then that's great. We'll have a great conversation about him mm -hmm. 
being so devoted and how how does he get the goat pictures and where does he go where are these goats from and and they're yeah. all named and he can tell you their names and it's amazing <laughs> i mean it's just it's fascinating all yeah, of the stories that, that he tell. i find that stuff fascinating yeah i would probably come into your store and just i'd be like you i'd be there all the time just hanging out <laughs> it's been my goal with all these interviews all the research i've been doing my whole academic career to figure out how to make money with your art. And I imagine that that's probably what you're trying to do too, right? We all want to do something that we love for a living. Yeah? Totally. Who wouldn't? Who wants a dead-end job? So, after all this research and all these interviews, I've discovered four secrets, the four top secrets to making money with your art. And now I have a 12-page report outlining the four top secrets to making money with your art. You can download this guide for free at howtomakemoneywithyourart.com. That's right. I got that domain name. So just head on over to howtomakemoneywithyourart.com, all spelled out no numbers and get your free report on how to make money with your art. Do you ever have, um, this is just a personal question. Do you guys like have a gallery walk night where you have all 170 or invite all 170 artists to come in? Do you do like a gallery oh walk? Thing? That'd be, there, that'd there be is epic. an art walk every Every first Friday, there's an art walk. We um, we have a rotating monthly featured artist show, and that that first Friday is where that whoever is the featured artist or artists um, uh-huh. would have their opening reception. Every artist is always invited and encouraged to come. Of course, uh. the, the, the who who does and who doesn't we never really keep tabs on because people have busy lives and it doesn't always work out. It would be epic. If would be all epic. 170 artists showed up, it would be the best party ever. Ever. Seriously, 170 artists. I mean, it it might be it might be crazy epic. It might be Jackson Pollock epic, which yeah. may not be a good thing. <laughs> or Salvador no, Dali epic. Oh my god, could you imagine uh, having yes. Salvador Dali at a party? <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> I heard he's done some crazy things for for those of you guys listening that don't know Salvador Dali, he's the crazy guy that did the the clocks melting, and he was known to like show up at parties with lobsters on his head, a live lobster. One time he showed up in a antique diving suit and nearly um, suffocated. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> I had an artist um, who who's no longer around, <laughs> but I had an artist that that. Yeah, the very, very like-minded with that. <laughs> this gentleman uh, had a goatee, but he shaved half of the mustache and then the other side half of the goatee portion, if that makes sense. So he's like half a face? A checkerboard effect of oh. a goatee. So, you know, if it was if it, if the the left part of the mustache was grown in, the right side was shaved, and and then the right side of the chin hair was grown in, and the left half was shaved. Oh, 
I get it. Man, I wish I had facial hair to play with. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I never got up the nerve to ask him about about his philosophy of why he did that, but he also wore underwear on his head. And I did ask <laughs> him about that. <laughs> I did good. finally say, I'm sorry. Were- sorry, guy. You got you've got underwear on your head and I just have to understand what what's going on with that and it turned out they're very absorptive and he felt like he perspired a bunch so he um really appreciated that he was a real character Uh, I'll tell you a personal story I went down a couple weeks ago to my mom's house with my her husband and you know it was the start of the pandemic and I said you know we got out of our car with our masks on and uh, I had a headband. I had gotten a hippie headband and I put it on as a mask. You know, it was the first time we kind of were joking about it a little bit. And he said, wait, 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 I got to go get my mask. And he went up and he came back downstairs and he came down with a pair of uh, jockey boxer briefs and he had tied a rubber band around the crotch and put the oh, underwear no. on his head and it was his mask. <laughs> and his man oh. was in his 70s and I just was like, I seriously bent over laughing and I was like, you were so lucky. I don't have my phone on because you would be going viral right now if I had a video. Oh, man, that's so He's funny. got a cane and he comes down and he's got this underwear on. Oh, my God. So, okay. Okay. So we've talked about art, product, presentation, educating your audience. Let's talk yes. about amplifying. I mean, you guys are amplified to the max. you got 170 artists in what, we said 20,000 square feet or something like that? Yes. How do you reach out to um, your audience? Do you guys have an email list? How do you do marketing for such a large space and so many artists? How do you do that? It's a lot. It's a lot. We do have an email list. Uh, We do monthly newsletters to just uh, announce who the featured artist is going to be, you know, any any different information that we've got going on, if we've just switched to uh, extended summer hours, mm-hmm. what else do we put in there? A lot of it, marketing-wise, um, is local publications. Uh, we, we have ads okay. in the publications that people pick up as they're walking around on the streets uh, or in their hotel rooms, um, that hotel book right. that uh, you always find in whatever town you go to. Do you have to pay for that? Okay. <laughs> just checking. <laughs> ah, yeah, nothing comes for free. Do you know what is free, though? What? When an artist gets into the gallery and sets up their space and they put out the information on, on their social media to reach out to their friends and family that they've just set up their, their area and they should, people should feel free to go down and check it out, that's priceless. Because yeah. that is the personal connection of an artist that has a group of people, um, and it's spider webs out. So you've got 170 artists all saying, "Wow, I just put something new in Woolworth Walk. You should go check it out." Yeah, and and that builds. Yeah. Well, you know, I think it goes back to this idea of success. At the very end, we've got art, product, presentation, educate, amplify, licensing, and contracts. And I had originally written this as the appeal system. And then I realized there needed to be an S on the end for success. And it really seems to me that the more you look at your success and share your success, it amplifies, (laughs) it builds. 
So it's like a teamwork thing. You guys promote your your artists, but your artists also promote you. And getting into Woolworth Walk is, you know, that's a form of success. I'd be all stoked. I'd be bragging about it, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's I mean, we've because we've been around for as long as we have, um, and it's a great atmosphere. Obviously, yeah. people walk in the door and they can tell that that it's uh, really fun and interesting and there's a lot going on. Our How we go through a portfolio review process, the artists wind up on a wait list for sometimes a few years. So by yeah. the time the, the call comes that they've got a space that, that's theirs, there's a lot of anticipation and a lot of preparation that they yeah. have been that that they've been making to wait for that phone call. Um, so that up. is, yeah, it's a big buildup, which is fantastic. You know, you're yeah. you're more than ready when the call comes. Yeah. yeah, that is so awesome. Now, do you guys use any um, automation apps or anything to help you do your social media outreach? Because you know. With as many social media channels as there are now, and you should be on Instagram, and you should be on Facebook, and you should be on LinkedIn, and you should be on this and that and the other thing. Like, that's a full-time job. Do you guys use anything special? I found, I don't know if it's an app uh, or, or service or whatever, Hootsuite uh, is yeah. what it's called. Uh, yep. And I I like Hootsuite because it allows me to handle a handful of things and schedule it. I think the key mm-hmm. there is using something that allows you to schedule your your posts. You can pick the time of day that way. You can, you know, you can customize so many different things and then do it once or twice a week and walk away from it and know that the visibility it will be a little bit more constant, but mm-hmm. you don't have to babysit it quite as much. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yep. I'm big into automation and, and tech. I'm a geek. And um, <laughs> I used to use Hootsuite, but I've uh, switched over to Meet Edgar lately, which I kind of like because you can add like evergreen posts. So like you can have posts that um just get recycled. Like you can okay. build up a whole queue of them. So for example, I think I entered, I spent one day entering like 200 quotes from artists and just scheduled them to go out on Twitter every day. For like nice. 200 days, you know? Nice. Meet and Edgar? I figure, yeah, yeah. It's called a queue. Check that out. So like the English line queue. Yeah. And you add yeah. things to your queue and you can say whether or not you want them to repeat or whether you want them to be on a specific day or you can have things that get recycled. And so if something, you know, with 200 artist quotes on Twitter, Twitter is so fast. Your your feed is just going bloop, 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 bloop. You know, you, a lot of people aren't going to, they're not going to see that quote every day. They're going to miss probably 50% of those quotes. So if they've missed 100 out of 200 quotes, it's no big f- deal for those to get recycled because you might get something out of them again as well. You might see those quotes and be like, oh, that was really fascinating. Or, oh, I get a different thing out of it. Yeah, that's great. Totally, totally. So licensing and contracts, this is one of the things that I think artists are scared of. Well, yeah, they don't, they don't want to feel like their rights are being taken away from them. Right, right. But also I think sometimes with, maybe it's just a woman thing, but we also don't want to sometimes like, uh, how do I put this gently? 
we don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to say, we don't want to ask for too much because we think the opportunity might pass us by if we're too demanding. Yeah. Um, so I th- that's my personal opinion. But I think we can be scared of contracts and licenses sometimes. So I like to always encourage our audience to think about licensing and contracts and contract terms as just an agreement, right? Do you guys have, I presume you've got to have some sort of paperwork in place for 170 artists. We do. Yeah. Let's it's a pretty basic. <laughs> yeah. Paperwork. Fascinating. <laughs> Grab a it's beer. Really it'll help. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> meet at happy hour to go over your contract. <laughs> you know, I think that's a, a new thing I'll have to implement in the podcast. Invite yeah. my guests on with a beer. <laughs> that, you know what? You'll get a lot of interesting stories that way. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think I'm going to do that for season three. Folks, coming up, season three, drink with us. <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll invite me back, right? <laughs> yes, please, please. Your choice. Perfect. Beer, wine, whatever. Nice. Well, so uh, the contract at Woolworth Walk is a really basic one. Um, It runs a little bit like consignment. So we don't own any of the items in the building. We're just Mm -hmm. caretaking them and selling them and then providing the artist with with the proceeds um, after a very small commission is deducted. And that's it. There's some some information in there about, you know, whether there's insurance and, um, you know, some basic stuff like that. So, Aaron, who provides insurance? Do you guys or do they? They would. If, if okay. that is something that they would be interested in, the idea is that in a rented space, the mm-hmm. other examples of rented space would be your storage unit, uh, right. you know, the little closet at the U-Haul place or whatever. Mm-hmm. And your homeowners would cover anything that's in there under a renter's clause. Mm-hmm. So if someone is is interested, concerned, wants to know that they've got that kind of coverage, they can talk to their insurance adjuster and find out if their renter's clause would be appropriate and would cover them for, for hmm. the display space as well. Yeah. Is there some provisions in there where you guys lay out what your responsibilities are towards the upkeep of the art? Oh, gosh, yes, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we've got agreements that we're going to sweep and mop and dust and and present ourselves like the art gallery that that represents, you know, and professional and um, represent them to the best of our abilities. Uh, it's going to be, you know, cool in the summer and warm in the winter so that it's an inviting atmosphere. Mm. Uh, and then all of the, the good legalese stuff about what day of the month they can expect the, their accounts to be settled. Um, you know, they have to sign that they understand what the commission is and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, spot to fill in what the rent is for, for whatever space. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely, and and we take all of that very, very seriously. Um, our responsibilities to support the artist is is very important to us. I mean, we wouldn't we wouldn't exist yeah. as a gallery without the artists being there. Um, and and you know, I my understanding is that we have a really good relationship or uh, yeah, relationship re- reputation. Uh, amongst our artists. Well, that's the thing I'm always trying to kind of uh, convey, because I think another part of the fear that artists have of contracts is that they're going to get taken advantage of. 
or that they're not going to understand the contract. But really, my understanding of contracts has come to be that they're supposed to protect both parties. They're really like a conversation of, I will do this for you. You do this for me. I agree to do this over here. You promise to do this over here. And when those things are are in writing, then people know what their responsibilities are. And, you know, because if you don't state those responsibilities of each party, each side, then feelings get hurt. So really, it's just a form of communication. And I'm always saying you've got to ask. There's no shame in asking, right? If you don't understand something about a contract. Right. No. And, and you know, one of the things that that I've done in particular of being there for so long, I've done, uh, I don't know how many hundreds of contracts at this point. Um, wow. I always ask them, you, you know, when you've got 10 minutes, come and talk to me as you're, you know, waiting for paint to dry or, or you know, just needing a break from hammering in hooks. Hmm. And I have gone through the contract and I actually made a crib sheet so that I can nice. refer to it. And I say, look, I'm going to, I'm going to go paragraph by paragraph and turn this into plain English and yes. tell you exactly what each paragraph says. Here's the paragraph that's called operating agreement. Here's the paragraph that's called, you know, maintenance. Here's the paragraph that's called miscellaneous, you know, all of the, the different things that are in the contract. And I just say them in very plain English. Because right. it is daunting. All of the, the licensee and licensor and all of that stuff yeah. is, is Which daunting. Am I, again? And I, am I the licensee or the licensor? They're so right. close to exactly. each other. And I like, always get them know, mixed up. And, ugh. Right. <laughs> exactly. And then at the very bottom, um, there's the, there, I, just, I always pause and say, okay, you know, this is the, we both agree to everything we've talked about. And if you have questions, let's talk about your questions now because neither of us have signed anything. And if you've got questions about how taxes are going to go and, you know, who, who does the reporting of what and when and how, uh, yeah. let's, let's make sure that everything makes sense. Oh, that is fantastic, Erin. I wish everybody would do that. That is fantastic. <laughs> I can't believe everybody doesn't. It, it, right? it only makes sense to, to build the relationship based on the trust that this is what I'm going to do and this is what you're going to do. And, you know, it's yeah. a, I, I always want to say it's a happily ever after kind of thing. We've just covered yeah. everything that, that you do and everything that I do. And now we're set free to just do what we do best. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I love the idea of licenses and contract terms in plain English. That's what I'm always trying to do is just break it down into plain English, plain old good English so that you can understand it. So that brings us, if you can believe this, we've been talking for 58 minutes and 58 seconds. Exactly. That brings (laughs) us to success. (laughs) That brings us to success. And how do you measure it? You know, you're both an artist and a curator of a huge gallery. And, um, you know, I think it's really easy for all of us as artists and as entrepreneurs to sort of like, go along and have these successes and kind of humble ourselves. And we're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I worked really hard for that, but it's not that big of a deal. And I don't want to brag real bad. So uh, I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) And we just kind of gloss over our successes. 
Um, what does success look like for you personally and for the gallery? And how do you guys kind of measure that and celebrate it? Ooh, that's a lot. Okay. I know. I'm so, sorry. Um, I need to make that simpler, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> well, there was, there were uh, just a handful of facets there. <laughs> just a handful. When I was doing photography, I think the, the metrics were a little bit easier um, to, to talk about because I had mm. more, more involved. I had, you know, the ink costs and the paper costs and matting and framing. So for me, success was covering the costs. Okay. Really basically. And, and covering the costs enough so that I could keep doing it. Right. And that's totally legit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's totally legit. I think with my mixed media work, because I I feel so experimental about it, Mm -hmm. I think success (laughs) for for those is watching somebody buy a piece. And it hasn't been hugely successful. It hasn't, Mm -hmm. I've not, I can't say that it, it, I've been a consistent seller with those pieces, Mm -hmm. but I feel a little bit more of a kinship when, when, you know, the one person every two or three months comes up and, uh, and is buying one, I feel like a, a connection has been made. Right. I get that. So completely different metric. The first was very practical and financial, mm-hmm. like just make enough to keep doing it. And that's success. Mm-hmm. And now feeling like making that connection that somebody appreciates something that I created and put out there, that that's success. And it, maybe that's a good answer because all, so many of the artists would, would give you so many different answers in, in that same question. No, success I think that's a phenomenal, them. phenomenal answer. Yeah. It can, yes. I've never thought of it changing with different mediums, but you're absolutely right. I mean, photography, there's a lot involved there and you can't just do it and throw it on the wall. It does, it does need to, the presentation of it needs to have some thoughtfulness to it. And, and that kind of thoughtfulness is, is expense in a lot of cases, you know, the matting, the framing, it's the um, printing, the printing. Yeah. (laughs) You know, when I took this fine art printing with John Paul Caponegro, I asked him how many uh, bats he pulled. So when you're printing fine art prints, you know, you're trying to hit a certain color range, a certain value. Yeah. You're, and I asked him one time, I said, well, how many prints, how many test prints do you do for each piece? Is it like one, two, five? And he's like, oh, it's more like 30 or 40. And yeah. some of those Easy. pieces of paper are a dollar a piece. Yep. And not to mention the ink. It's the artist's ideal, though, and and you you know you know when it's right, and you know you know when it's not right. And I would bet that he would never show anybody the ones that were not right because you just don't. You just they're not right. I've heard of artists who burn them. Mm, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I cut mine up, use them in mixed media. Do you? There you go. There you go. Yeah, because it's nice paper. um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. If it can be reused, um, Woolworth. Well, I, I, I don't know how many people love this and how many people hate it. I know some people that love it. I don't know how many people hate it. But every what? February, we have at Woolworth Walk, we have what we call the second sale. We Ooh. run it for the entire month, mm-hmm. and every artist is uh, allowed to bring in anything. 
anything from any medium that they're mm-hmm. wanting to just get rid of from their studios, clean out from from the nooks and crannies, huh. and try to recoup. So, so I have um, I have a a lady that is a mixed media artist. She she has gorgeous gourds. They're just beautiful. Um, but she likes to, in her spare time, when she's taking a break from from carving these gourds, she paints and and does encaustic work. So every mm-hmm. every second sale, every February, there's always a, a you know a handful of of very different things mm. for sale. That is fantastic. I don't think I've ever heard of another gallery doing a second sale, but it's a really great way. It sounds like a really great way to me to test a different collection, a different medium. Like you're talking about this lady that does the gourds and the encaustics. So that's not what sells for her, but she still likes doing it. So she right. can test it. Yes, exactly. Exactly. It's that's super fantastic. fun. And, you know, it, February is not a great tourist month. Um, but having, having something where people can come and feel like they're going to get something handmade at Mm -hmm. maybe a little bit of a discounted price, Mm -hmm. um, it's made a big difference on, on having a a crummy winter month. Now it's turned into a, Hey, we made it through and everything's, everybody's happy. That's fantastic. What a brilliant marketing idea. Hmm. It's fun. We've been doing it for a handful of years now. Now we've gotten to the point where in January, people start, our customers start asking about it. <laughs> oh, that's a good so sign. Yes. Yeah. I would want to come to the second sale because, you know, um, artists are pretty picky. We, we tend to be perfectionists. We're not the type. A lot of us aren't the type to show something that we don't think is up to our standards. And oftentimes... I mean, I certainly, maybe, I don't know if you've had this, Erin, happen to you, where, like, I'll show something, I'll have a collection of work, and the piece that I think is, like, the bomb is the one that doesn't sell. And the piece that I'm like, eh, that's, that's, that's like, the lowest of the low. Like, uh, I'm not really into that, but it kind of gets, it fits with the theme, it fits with the collection, I'll show it anyways. And that's the one that sells. <laughs> I wish I could see my head shaking every single time. Right? I put something up on the wall and it's the rock star and it sits there for a year. I put something in that I just pulled out of anywhere to yeah. make an empty hook go away and I really don't like it and I shouldn't have hung it <laughs> and I hate myself for hanging it and it sells in a week. It's yeah. I, I, That's another right. one of those things that I've watched happen and I can't explain it. I don't have words. Well, a little story for you then. I don't think I've told this one on the podcast, but it's one of my funniest stories for me about being an artist. I went to the University of Vermont and I had this fantastic painter a professor. His name was Frank. I think his name was Frank Owen. Anyways, he was saying one day in class, we were having this critique and one of the you know teenage 18 year old boys was like, oh, that's a hard painting. It's freaking ugly. You know, he was he was being a bit harsh. And Frank looked at him and says, anybody here like that painting? And a handful of hands shot up. And he says, I'll tell you what, I'm going to make you guys a challenge. If somebody (laughs) in here can paint a painting so ugly that everybody in the class, everybody in the critique thinks that it is ugly and agrees that it is ugly, I will give you an A. (laughs) And I went home and I tried. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I tried really hard. 
I was like neon pink. I stuck bubble gum on that canvas. As, <laughs> as I recall, it had this abstract kind of snail shell with a giant nose coming out of it. And the bubble gum was going up into the nose. And I think I called it something like nose candy, something very like, you know, um, politically incorrect as an 18 year old or, or whatever. And I sure. took that thing and in. I was like, loved it, didn't they? Yeah, I was like, it's going to be an A. It's going to be an A. It's so ugly. It's lime green and hot pink and mustard color. And wouldn't you know my best friend loved that thing? And she took it with her. She was like, you have to give me that thing. And she took it with her and she put it on her wall. She got a degree in psychology. She put it on her wall. She had it in her office for years. And then it got stolen. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. <gasps> How funny. Never seen it since. One of her clients stole it somewhere along the line. So Noah's Candy is out there. It has been stolen officially. You know, I'm a famous artist in my own mind because I've been stolen. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Somebody out there will see it someday and has to report back to you where they found it. Oh, it was so god awful. Oh, it was horrid. <laughs> Somebody Anyways. loved it though. Somebody uh, loved it. Multiple people to, loved to it. I didn't get an A. <laughs> I didn't get an A. <laughs> nope, you didn't. <laughs> no, no. So that's oh, fantastic. I love the idea of um, the seconds and the idea that yeah, you know, sometimes you just got to show something. And I wish more places would give artists that opportunity, that opportunity to show something, and the encouragement to show something that maybe they don't feel is their best work because we well, don't because you know. Never know. Yeah, you, yeah. You don't know who's out there. You don't know um, what they like, what they don't like. You don't know what they've gone through that, that you seeing your work could trigger in them. Yeah. Um, something they, they want to, you know, they want to have a piece that, that will remind them it's somehow cathartic mm. to see, Something that represents what they, you know, a, a, a tough thing that they've been through. Yeah. Or, or something that makes them celebrate something that, that they've just been through or accomplished. True. You just never know. I mean, for, for as many different kinds of people are out there in the world, there are even more moods and experiences that all of those people have. Right. Right. Ah, oh, well, Aaron, thank you so much. Um, I do like to close at the end with any recommendations of books, and I've expanded that to include podcasts or blogs that you love, admire, recommend. Any shout outs? Hmm. Wow. My brain is blank. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. We do that sometimes. I, I tend to do that occasionally, you know, just spring one on you. Um, but we can yeah. always put links if you think of something at the end. You know, Woolworth Walk is part of a gallery community, right? How many galleries are, are there? Well, in downtown proper, we're at, I think, 23 right now. Mm, you, we, always, we always lose a few and gain a few uh, during the course of, of the years that, that go by. But mm -hmm. but. Bigger than that, because still in Asheville proper is the River Arts District that is home to hundreds oh. of studios and, and galleries. Um, so the, the greater Asheville area, the greater downtown uh -huh. area, 
has just a ridiculous number of, of arts. And anybody coming to Asheville should check it all out, of course. Yeah. And, and again, with the community idea, you know, there's, and I'm, I'm really proud of us, the, the downtown Asheville Artists District is the group that puts out the, the downtown art guide. Um, it's uh-huh. recently expanded to the symphony and the theater companies and, oh, you know, any, yeah, yeah. Stage production destination, right? And you guys have that old fashioned yes. soda fountain that we haven't even touched on. <laughs> we do. We do. Yeah. There's, that's a whole other, other wonderful conversation. We're the only yeah. art gallery in town that smells like bacon all the time. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> Oh, that'll make people buy just that alone. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But I'm, I, you know, the idea of the community and not the competition, I'm just really, really proud of, mm. of our, our art scene for being so supportive of each other. It, there re- there's room for all of us. We all have a slightly different flavor. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I feel like if you come to town for art, you shouldn't just go to Woolworth Walk. You should go to Blue Spiral. You should go to Momentum. Mm-hmm. You should I'm gonna not be able to name everybody. Um, Zapow, Horse and Hero. I mean, there are so many places that if you've come to, to Asheville for art, you should check them all out. Yeah. It's one of the big meccas for art on the East Coast. I'm trying to think of where else is, you know, I mean, Sonoma, uh, Sedona. Arizona comes to mind as a as an art destination, but I'm trying to think on the East Coast. I can't think of any other town quite. I wouldn't. I'm not the Florida, of course, Miami and stuff, but that's like a big city too. Yeah, there are a lot of of artistic little nooks. Mm-hmm. I I grew up in upstate New York, and the last time I was there, I went to Ithaca. Okay. Ithaca has some colleges nearby. I think oh, any yeah. town that has a college definitely is going to have, um, you know, a little more cosmopolitan um, atmosphere, and definitely is is going to be a little more welcoming and and uh, you know, good good spot for art. They yeah. definitely Ithaca yeah. had that. I think that I live near Lancaster, and they have a little bit of an art scene, but they also have the draw of the Amish. But it's not that right. like you guys have. We, you know, we're just so grateful to be in such a great spot where so many creative people are, are drawn and, and are, you know, are able to make a living and, and stay here and keep creating. It's a, it's a great spot. Yeah. It's those blue mountains. It is. They're beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> They're so deep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Erin. This has been so much fun chatting with you. I've learned a lot. You're delightful. well thank you well that's it for the artist appeals i hope you've enjoyed it as much as i've enjoyed recording it i just love talking with all these artists and business people it's phenomenal and i've learned so much i hope you've learned something too you can get more information you can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com that's the Artist Appeals, A-P-P-E-A-L-S.com. Thanks and have a good one.